really would like for you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 23. That'll help you get more out of this lesson. It'll help us to uh, benefit in a way that I think God would want us to. Matthew 23, starting in verse 13. I hope you've had a good week and a good summer. I think a lot of folks started back to school this week, didn't they? So I don't know if that's an exciting thing or an unexciting thing. That probably depends on your perspective and where you are in life. But um, I hope it goes well. Those of you who started back to school, whether as a student or as a teacher, that you'll have a good year of learning and teaching. And, and uh, it's always somewhat of a relief when summer comes to an end from a church perspective. You always have... So many people traveling over the course of the summer, and I always like it when we have um, folks here. We have our people at home, so it's good to see you. If you've been traveling, we welcome you back to Hoover today. Visitors, we welcome you, of course, and look forward to seeing you more later. Uh, we're talking, as I introduced to you at the beginning of the service, we've been emphasizing some things about that other side of Jesus. This is the fourth of four lessons that I will have presented on this topic, and it came, as I explained this to you a month or so ago, but this, this idea came as a result of an article that I read with that title, That Other Side of Jesus, and the author of the article was, was talking about this, this theme, and I thought, you know, that's pretty interesting. I think we do that. I think we need that because I tend to, I think we all have this tendency to gravitate toward that, those, those texts and those images of Jesus that make us feel, I don't know, we we. we, we we like them, you know, we, we like those texts about Jesus when he's making us feel better about ourselves or he's saying things that we agree with, you know, I mean, we like that. Those texts of scripture, those that we already agree with, those, those are pretty neat. I mean, we can find, we can find things we like in the Bible and, and then we can find those sections of scripture that are a little bit more difficult, that maybe they say things that make us feel uncomfortable. Maybe they, maybe they hit a little bit too close to home. They step on our toes, so to speak. You know, one of the things I've noticed as I've looked at the gospel accounts and read what Jesus said and what he did, and especially when you start looking at those negative things that he said and those negative things that he did, there seems to be a consistent pattern. And, and it, I want you to notice this because this, is, this, this ought to make us in this church listen up maybe a little bit more closely to the words of Jesus than we sometimes might because... The thing that I've noticed is that Jesus was very patient with, very understanding of, and very compassionate toward people who were on the margins of society for whatever reason. People because of ethnicity, people because of gender, people because of life choices, because they had lived a life of immorality perhaps, but they were on the margins of society. Jesus lived in a very religious part of the world, as in his day especially. Most parts of the world were quite religious in different respects, but in, in the world in which Jesus lived, that Judea, Galilee, it was a very religious part of the world. Most people were members of the Jewish faith, or some version of it. And so he was speaking to, many times he was speaking to religious people. But here's the thing, that, that consistency. When he engaged people who had made a mess of their lives and who had lived in, in many respects in rebellion to God, he was very patient with and compassionate toward those people. 
Do you know whom he reserved his harshest words for? You probably, based on what I've already said, you probably know the answer. You may have already known it anyway. He saved his harshest words for the most religious people. That makes me a little bit scared. <clears throat> and I hope that if you're a religious person, if you're somebody who's here every time the doors are open, if you've got your own pew, you know, your assigned pew that you're sitting in right now, I hope that this will make you listen up a little bit more. I think all the Bible is written to us in some respect, but there are some parts of it that are written to us more directly, and this might be one of those passages. I need, to, I need to narrow this down just a bit, though, because I want you to know in Matthew 23, he's not only talking to religious people. This ought to make some of us listen up even a little bit more closely than some of you. He's talking not only to religious people, he's talking to people who were leaders within this religious community. That ought to make us, if we have any, in, in any kind of leadership in churches or in religious circles, this ought to make us listen up even more closely. He's talking to all of us. He's talking to us especially if we're religious, and he's talking to us even more especially if we're involved in any kind of religious leadership. All right, let's get to the text. What we've got here is a series of woes. We've got Jesus talking to some religious people about their, their attitudes and toward their practices that were an abomination to God. He uses harsh words here, and there are a series of seven of them. By the way, this is probably on Tuesday, just to give you a bit of chronology here. This is probably on Tuesday of Passion Week. He came into the city on Sunday. He's done some teaching, and here he is on probably Tuesday. He's going to be arrested Thursday night. He's going to be crucified on Friday. He's going to be resurrected on Sunday. So giving you an idea where we are, we're on Tuesday, all right? These people whom he's speaking to in Matthew 23, they're going to stand up two days later, and they're going to say, crucify him, crucify him, let his blood be on us and on our children. These are those people. He's in Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested in Jerusalem two days after this. And so he's speaking directly to these people. He knows what's in their hearts. Look at verses 13 and 14. I appreciate, appreciate Caleb's reading. Uh, the first part of the text, and uh, we're going to go beyond even what, what he read and look at some of this, but verses 13 and 14, the first one, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, because you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. This is scary. I mean, this is, this is a big deal. They turn other people away from the kingdom. This is, what, I want you to ask the question, what would Jesus make, what would make Jesus say, what he says here, what would make Jesus look you and me in the eyes and say, you are a hypocrite, and I am pronouncing woe upon you. That's scary. For the Son of God, can you imagine for the Son of God to look you in the eyes and say, you are a hypocrite, and I am pronouncing woe upon you. That's not a good thing. That ought to scare us. Because that's, that's a frightening place to be in, to be the recipient of these kinds of words. So the question is, what would make Jesus say, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? What would make? First thing is, they keep people out of the kingdom. Because of their practice, because of the way their attitudes, because of the way that they emphasize and the things they de-emphasize, they shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. It was as if they, you know, they made a big deal about making proselytes. They would a proselyte, by the way, is a convert to the Jewish faith. 
uh, of someone who's not a Jewish person, ethnic, you know, um, ethnically speaking. And so it's a non-Jew who converts to the Jewish faith. That's what a proselyte is. So he says, you know, you go all over the world and you try to make these people proselytes. He says that in the next, in next verse, in verse 15. But prior to that, he says, you know, you, go, you, you try to make people proselytes. You're, you're trying to spread the faith. But what you're doing is you're shutting the door of the kingdom in people's faces. By the way that you live, you're making people not want to have anything to do with God. Now, you think, I mean, I guess an application of this is, is obvious. There are some Christians who, by their attitudes and by the way they live, make unbelievers want to have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. You don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be that kind of person. You know someone like that? I don't want this to be an other kind of thing. I don't want, you, I don't want us to stop by thinking about other people because we know people who are like this. We know people who wear the name of Christ, but they wear it in such a way that you, you want to say to them, you ever know anybody like this? They wear the name of Christ, and you want to say to them, please, please don't tell anybody that you're a Christian. You know, you know somebody like that? Don't tell anybody you're a Christian because I don't want them to know because the way that you model it is ugly. Your attitude is ugly. Your life is inconsistent with, with, with being a follower of Jesus. Don't tell anybody that you're a Christian. Now, I think that's a subset. I think it's a small subset, but it's there. And Jesus seems to be responding to that kind of thing. You shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces by the way that you live, by the words and your attitudes and your actions. People look at you and they don't want anything to do with God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you turn other people away from God's kingdom. Jesus hates that. He hates it. So what you put out there on social media, the attitude you display at work or at school or in the locker room or in the ballpark on Friday afternoon, the kind of actions that you commit, the, the, just the way that you live in front of people who know you, let those presences, let those words and attitudes and actions be the kind of words, actions, and attitudes that make, make people say, I want to know more about Jesus. Because if those attitudes, actions, and words cause them to want nothing to do with your faith. That's a dangerous place to be in, turning other people away from the kingdom. Look at verse 15. They convert people to their own way of thinking and not to God's. Verse 15, he says, you go out here, you make these proselytes, you make these converts to the Jewish faith, and then you turn them into twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? So they were converting people. They were converting people. You know you can make a convert, but you can't make a convert to the wrong thing. You can make a convert. You can go out and you can teach, and you can preach, and you can do Bible studies, and you can draw people in, and you can, you can make a convert out of them. That's what they were doing. They were making converts, but they weren't making converts to God. They were making converts 
to themselves, converts to their own ways of thinking, not to God's way of thinking. That's how they were proselytizing. And I guess the same thing could be said in our context as well sometimes, right? We need to be careful when we are teaching people the gospel that we're teaching them the gospel and that we're converting them to Jesus. We're not converting them to a particular ideology. We're not converting them to ourselves, to our own way of thinking, but only to the extent that what we're saying is reflected by a, uh, an accurate interpretation of what Scripture says. Let's, let's just be careful as a church that we always shine the light on Jesus that when we're teaching people, we're not converting them to a religion per se, but we're converting them to Jesus. Because that's what it means to be an evangelist. It is sharing the good news about Jesus. It's taking the spotlight off of ourselves and putting it on him. He goes on and he says in this kind of a long paragraph, 16 to 22, he says they twist scripture to get what they want. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. Now, now imagine this. this. This kind of thing was happening in Jesus' world. You can swear by the temple, no big deal. You don't have to keep that oath. If you swear by the temple, you just say, I swear by the temple. That doesn't mean you have to keep your oath. You don't have to do that. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, oh, in that case, you've got to keep your oath because that's a real oath. You blind fools, he says, verse 17. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that's made the gold sacred? You think you can make this kind of distinction here? Where you can swear by the temple, you don't have to keep the oath. You swear by the gold of the temple, you've got to keep that oath. This kind of, this kind of a parsing of, of words is, is hypocritical, he says. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that's made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if you swear by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by the oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits upon it. But he says, you are parsing words. You are taking scripture and you're creating all this, these false sets of laws, these, these oral traditions, these these things that aren't biblical, and you're making them matters of faith. You're, you're, you're making these distinctions that aren't really differences. And as such, people see through that hypocrisy. It's, it's as if their religion, their relationship to God, was contingent on their just parsing the words of Scripture in ways that are just so ridiculous. I mean, he goes on and he expounds on this a little bit more with a different woe in verses 23 and 24. Look at this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the waiter in matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. What he's talking about here is there's laws in the old law about tithing and he's, they, they take the smallest herbs these spices and they dice them out make sure I got this you know tenth of an ounce of cumin I'm going to slice it off just so make sure I give my 10% of 
of cumin, of this small amount of this spice. And then you treat people badly. And then your attitude is ugly. You think God is more concerned about you giving 10% of that cumin or is he concerned about you treating people the right way? Which does God care about? I don't think Jesus says he doesn't care about the former and he cares about the latter. In fact, Jesus says you need to do both. He's not saying you ignore what the law said about tithing. It said some specific things about tithing. He's not saying you just disregard that. But he's saying, don't you understand that there, is, there, there, are, there are levels of commitment to God and, and you, 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 you get to this minutia of tithing, but then you forget the greater thing about treating people right, about being mercy, merciful, about being faithful. You... Uh, Straight out a gnat, swallow a camel. You know what I was talking about, probably? There were laws in the Old Testament about you could not eat certain winged creatures because they were unclean, like a gnat. You don't want to swallow a gnat. So if you're drinking some water, you might put a strainer there so that you pour the water or the milk or the wine you strain it out so that any gnat that might have fallen into your drink gets strained out and you don't violate the law about ingesting a gnat. And then you go out here and swallow a camel. It's, it's a, he's making a point, obviously a, a point of exaggeration. You, you're so concerned about this Small gnat, the biggest land animal in Judea was, was a camel. And so he's, you know, he's obviously he's making this, he's using this hyperbole to emphasize you guys major in the minors. I wonder if it's ever true of God's people in our current day and time. Is it ever true of us? Is it ever true of us? We'll be so careful to parse words, to get every doctrinal point lined up. This we do, this we do not do. We've got a list of things of what it means to be faithful, what it means to be unfaithful. And I don't think Jesus is saying, throw that out. I don't think he's saying doctrine doesn't matter. He's not saying it doesn't matter how you practice worship. It doesn't matter what you teach about Lots of doctrinal stuff. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying throw that out. He is saying if you get all of your doctrine right, you you got your bullet points here, and this is my statement of faith, and it's biblical, but then you don't practice kindness. You're not merciful to those who are hurting. You're not a person who who exhibits justice and fairness in the way that you treat the poor and the rich, the influential and the marginalized. If you don't practice these higher principles of justice and mercy and faithfulness, you have missed it because God is more than a set of regulations. And he's about more than a set of doctrinal commitments. God is about people. And he's about how we treat people. 
we likewise could strain out a net, making sure we don't practice one false thing doctrinally. But we get so obsessed with that that we don't even think about swallowing the camel. And in context, what he's saying is we're not honoring justice and mercy and faithfulness just because we got the doctrine right. They major in minors. Look what he says in verses 25 and 26. Their motives are impure. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. He's talking about their motives. On the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. He pointed this out on numerous occasions, but his point here is that these people, on the outside, they look like they were committed to being faithful. Look at us, you know, we pray at the right times, we do it on the street corners, we use all the right words, we've got the flowery theological language, we sound good when we pray. We're very religious, obviously, just look at us. Just look at us and hear us talk, we're very religious. And he says, your hearts on the inside are greedy and self-indulgent. God's concerned about a whole lot more than how you look and how you sound. And if people think you're religious or not, he's more concerned about our motivation, why we do what we do. In verses 27 and 28, they focus on the outside and not the inside. This is closely related to verses 25 and 26, but look at this. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and, and lawlessness. I mean, you know what this means. You, you, we all know that we can come to this place, we put our suit on, put our dress on. We look good. We talk the right talk. We know the right religious language. We've been in it long enough. He's talking to religious people, right? So he's talking to some of us. We've been in it. I've been at this all my life, you know. Some of you have as well. I don't ever remember not being in church. I know the language quite well. You know the language pretty well too, I'm guessing. Many of you do. So we know how to act. We know how to dress. We know how to talk the right thing. We know how to say it right so that people think we're, we got it all together. Jesus, Jesus is saying to us as a church, he's saying to us who are religious, he's saying especially to us who are religious leaders, I want to know your heart. I want to know your heart. And he does know our heart, right? He knows our hearts. He knows what's on the inside. He knows if we spend all this time on the outward appearance and our language and making sure people think we're religious and we're spiritual. And he is saying that I want, I want an, I'm, I'm more concerned about what's on the inside. I, I'm more concerned about your heart. I'm more concerned about your consistency between the outside and the inside for you, not just to look religious, but for you to be spiritual. Jesus is concerned about that. You know, we can fool one another. I mean, how, how many weeks do we go, if you pay attention to religious headlines, how many weeks go by when there is not some well-known religious leader in the Christian community somewhere in our country that you find out he's been immoral, he's been unethical, he's been living a lie, 
Everybody saw him. He's this great religious leader, this great orator, persuasive. And yet it comes out at some point that he's living inconsistently with everything that he preached and taught. It happens all the time. And my guess is it happens to so many of us as well. Or at least we're tempted with that. Not just preachers who are on the stage, but all of us to say one thing and do another, to pretend to be a person that we're not. I mean, you know the etymology of the word hypocrite. It's a, it was a play actor, a stage actor who would put on different masks, you know. If you're happy in one scene, you put on the happy mask. If you're sad in the next scene, you go behind stage and put on a sad mask. And so the word hypocrites was a, a, a stage actor, a play actor who wore different masks. And Jesus says, Christians do that too. They wear their church mask on Sunday. And then they wear their work mask on Monday or school mask on Monday. And then they got an, a, another mask they wear when they're out of town and they're in the hotel room. They're traveling. They're away from family. And they can get away with stuff, right? They wear a different mask. They've got the alone mask. They've got the public mask. They've got the family mask, the work mask, the school mask. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because Jesus is mostly concerned. Uh, mostly is not the right adverb. Jesus is completely concerned, only concerned about the real you and me. That's the one he's concerned about. The last one this is a long paragraph, 29 through 36. Here's, you know what the most frightening thing about everything we've said so far? Most frightening thing about all this is that when, when I read this, when I teach this, when you hear this, when you read this, you know what the natural thing to do is? Chuck, you know what? I agree with that. I agree with every word of it. And I can think of 10 people that applies to. I got, I got so many. You want the list? Here they are. You need to deal with them. You're the preacher. You need to take care of these folks. That, that, that's a kind of natural reaction, right? Yeah, I agree with, man, look at what you, this is so true. I know so many people who need to hear this message. I'm going to give them a link, right? That's the problem. In verses 29 through 36, he says, you don't even know I'm talking about you. That's what he says. He says, you know, you build these tombs of the prophets, uh, these, these tombs to the prophets. 700 years ago, your great, 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 however many great grandfather killed the prophet. You're building this beautiful tomb to Isaiah, to Jeremiah. You're building this tomb. And you know what? You are the same as your great, 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 great grandfather who killed Isaiah. And you try to act all holy. And you're the same person. You're the same person, and you don't know it. That's the problem with hypocrisy. I can see it in other people. I can't see it in myself. The problem with inconsistency is the problem with what we're talking about in Matthew 23. You can see it in me. You can see it in other people. We can see it in everybody else, but we are blind. That's why the PowerPoint screen, the background there, the blindfold, because this is so hard to see in ourselves. And so Jesus several times here says, Woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, 
hypocrites because you can't even see it. So here's my challenge. This is, this is not fun stuff, is it? This isn't fun stuff. Lots of, lots of stuff in the Bible that's not particularly fun. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this? Here's, here's what I want to challenge you, the, the, the church, church folks. I want to challenge you to pray about this on your own because, because the tendency, this, this natural kind of protective reaction to this is to, to find somebody else. Because if I find somebody else who, who's doing the things he's talking about here, it makes me feel better about myself. Oh, yeah, you know what? I hate hypocrisy. I hate it, especially in other people. And I can see it so clearly in them. But what I want you to do, if you would, as a church, is to take this text on your own time and read over it and just sit there with it in, in prayer, to, prayer to God over this and say, Lord, help me see where I am here. Help me see how this text speaks to me. Help me see, Lord, how you were talking to me because that's the point. That's the point where this becomes really, really hard is to take these 24 verses, or however, however many verses it is, take these verses and, and to become introspective about this, self-reflective, and to say, what, well, Lord, you know, I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. I'm so guilty of this. Help me see that. Because we've got to do that with the text. We've got to do that with the text. Jesus doesn't let us sit here and be comfortable week in and week out and just happy with the status quo. He wants to take us from where we are to where he created us to be. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That other side of Jesus will make us uncomfortable. He pronounces woes on religious people. He pronounces woes on religious leaders. And he might be pronouncing woes on you and me today in this spirit-inspired text. If you're not a Christian today, I know I've been mostly talking to Christian folks because that's who Jesus was talking to. He was talking to religious people. So I've been mostly talking to religious people today, to people who are part of our congregation here. But we got visitors here today and it might be that someone is here and you've been thinking about Jesus. You, you've, uh, you've been drawn to him. God's drawn you to Jesus Christ and you've come to a point in your life where you, you think, you know, I, I know I'm not living the life I was created to live. And I know God's got bigger plans for me. And maybe today is the day where you decide, I'm going to turn my life over to God. I'm going to let him do with me what he will. And you come forward today in just a moment. If this is your decision, and you give your heart to Jesus Christ, turning away from whoever the person you've always been is and turning toward the person God wants you to be, confessing your faith, your, your submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, putting him on as a... Bible uses garment language, putting him on as a garment, wearing him. You demonstrate that in the waters of baptism. All your sins washed away by the blood of Christ, demonstrated in the waters of baptism, rising to walk a new kind of life. That's what the Bible talks about when it says you come to faith in Jesus. Maybe today you want to come to him. Maybe you've got questions about him. We'd love to sit down with you and study with you. In fact, there's an article, front page of the bulletin, just a short couple of paragraphs there, that if you're visiting with us today, I'd like for you to read that. If you haven't read it yet, take you about 30 seconds to read it. Read that. It's a message from us to you. If you need to come to him in faith today, we invite you to come. If you need to come back to him today because your life hasn't been what it ought to have been, we invite you to come back to him today. Let's stand. Let's sing this song.